Welcome to Puck and Pig Skin, analysis and discussion of everything that happens between the end zone and the creases. I'm your host, Shane Marazon, and thank you for joining me. Uh, we've got a lot up on deck today. We've got the AFC Championship and NFC Championship recaps. We've got the look ahead to the Super Bowl. And then we've got the NHL coming out of the All-Star break and how all of that's uh, been going. Um, so we're going to just jump right in with the uh, AFC Championship game. Uh, Cincinnati beat uh, Kansas City 27-24. That was not... It was a very chaotic game. There were there was a long point in time where everyone pretty much had thought that game was over with and Kansas City was going to win. They were up. The high watermark was 21-3, to but that was immediately followed up with a touchdown, so I don't really consider it more than a real high watermark of about 11 uh, points versus 18. Now, there are some very you know, startling things that happened within the game, right? Let's first break down uh, Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes looked amazing in the first half, like absolutely phenomenal. And then the second half came around, and he didn't look good at all, and he looked absolutely atrocious in overtime. I'm going to break something down here. They had four possessions in the first half. The first three of them went for touchdowns, and they weren't like short drives either. You had 11, 7, and 8 plays respectively for 84, 75, and 72 yards, and those were their three touchdown drives in the first half for Kansas City. Now, their last drive was 7 plays for 80 yards and was in a minute and 5 seconds at the end of the half. They decided to run a play when there was almost no time left on the clock, five seconds to be exact, and Patrick Mahomes decided to throw a pass behind the line of scrimmage. If they weren't going to get into the end zone, he should have been targeting, he should have been throwing the ball away. Um, and I think that really energized the Cincinnati defense because when they came out of the half, Kansas City did nothing. They got a field goal in the last drive of the game, but they did nothing the rest of the second half. Their drives went punt, punt, interception, punt, punt, then the field goal to tie the game at the end of the game. They had a total of five plays, five plays, two plays, three plays, three plays, and then 14 plays on their field goal drive to end it. They they were really, really bad in the second half, and now we're going to get into something else, though. One thing that stuck out that to me about Cincinnati was that game should never have gotten that far out of hand in terms of the score difference because Cincinnati just wasn't good in the red zone uh, in the AFC Championship game. They went one for three, but that one time that they scored while in the red zone, scored a touchdown when in the red zone, was right after the pick, and they started their drive on the 27-yard line. Outside of that, their other two red zone trips, they had they had to settle for field goals. One at the 14-yard line, and one at the uh, at the 13-yard line. They they were unable to convert. Now, if they had converted, this game would have been very different. It would have been a much closer game, and 
everyone wouldn't have been talking about it the way they did. However, their other touchdown, by the way, that they got was that was not a red zone drive was a 40 yard pass uh to the Samaja Pirine uh that was their first touchdown of the game right before the end of the half to make it 21-10 now so that that's something that's concerning and we'll talk about um we'll talk about going forward a little bit later when we talk about the Super Bowl but Cincinnati's defense played phenomenally in the second half of that game a huge statistic a couple of huge statistics to talk about Patrick Mahomes and what that defense did to him towards the end of the game is QBR and quarterback rating and and also his QBR so his quarterback rating in the first half was 149.9 almost perfect in the second half it was 34 and in overtime it was 0.0 now his QBR, which is on a different scale, one to a, a zero to a hundred, he had a ninety-eight in the first half and a one point four in the second half. That's really bad. But and their first and second half numbers are also really, really different. They had two hundred and ninety-one yards for twenty-one points in four drives in the first half, and eighty-three yards for three points in the second half in overtime. Now there's a really big thing that the Cincinnati Bengals started doing in the second half that they adjusted to that was really, really good. Is They started dropping eight. And so if they were able to get pressure with four and they were able to drop eight and it really left Patrick Mahomes nowhere to go quickly and he couldn't look people off the same way he sometimes does when he gets those crazy throws. And so it, it's a very big deal to talk about that they adjusted. Cincinnati adjusted. Kansas City did not. Kansas City expected, oh, we didn't get the drive at the end of the half. We didn't get that touchdown. Okay, we're up 21 to 10. We'll be fine. You know, go into half, come out. We'll still keep rolling. But Cincinnati adjusted and Kansas City didn't. You cannot expect a team to come out of halftime and not adjust to you, and therefore you need to have things in place to adjust to them. The other things to note are... Both Joe Burrow and Patrick Mahomes' numbers are pretty darn close for the game. Joe Burrow, 23 of 38 for 250, two TDs and one interception. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, 26 of 39 for 275, and three touchdowns, two picks. Um, He had an average of 7.1 yards, Burrow 6.6. And they played very similarly. And both teams ran the ball fairly similarly. The big difference really came down to... um, came down to the defense in the second half. It kept Cincinnati in it, and they were able to get a couple drives to go down and get a touchdown and field goal um, in that game to cover the 11 points that they needed going into the second half, uh, 21-10. So that's one thing. They were able to keep it tight. They adjusted, and that's really what you got to do to be good in this league and to win a Super Bowl. So you've got to be able to adjust. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens coming out of halftime during the Super Bowl. But they also protected Joe Burrow on Sunday. He only was sacked one time, and that's very good. Um, but let's get it. there's something I wanted to get into, which was 
the uh, the target share in that game was very different to how you normally not very different to how you normally see. It was very spread out. You had ten targets um, for Higgins and nine for Chase. Then you had only you had six for Boyd. Uzama, though, who I think is a big part of their game, got knocked out early. He's not a flashy tight end like George Kittle or Travis Kelsey in Cincinnati, but he gets them those yards when they need it. Um, Joe On third down especially, Joe Burrow ended up on one drive getting like three third downs consecutively running the ball because he didn't really have that outlet. So... It does look like he'll be back for the Super Bowl, which is very good for them. It looked like a serious injury. Um, so that's going to be very helpful. And the other thing is Joe Burrow isn't bothered by uh, mistakes or by a play. He He's very much good. He's very good at just dealing with what comes and just moving on to the next play, starting fresh. And I don't think Patrick Mahomes is. I think Joe Burrow is a little better at dealing with um, when he makes a mistake or when something doesn't go right, being able to rebound really, really quickly. And I think Patrick Mahomes can struggle with that at times. Um, So Cincinnati got the win their first time in the Super Bowl in 33 years. Um, It'll be very interesting to see. Uh, We'll get into that, the Super Bowl matchup in a little bit. We're now going to shift focus to the NFC Championship game between the Rams and the 49ers. Now, this game was very different. This was a much slower game. Um, There was much more of a feel of closeness to the game. Uh, Both teams didn't start off great. No points in the first four drives. Punt Rams, punt 49ers. Interception Rams, punt 49ers. And then we got what I essentially saw as a script of this game. It was when one team scored, the other team scored. You had the touchdown by the Rams, followed by the touchdown by the uh, 49ers. Then you had a missed field goal by the Rams, which is not usual for Matt Gay. And then a made field goal to end the half uh, by San Francisco. So that gave them a 10-7 lead in the half, at going into the end of the half. But essentially... It was good drive followed by good drive after those first four, um, after those first four possessions. Now in the second half, very similarly, the 49ers came out and punted while the Rams turned the ball over on downs, and then the 49ers got a touchdown and the Rams answered right back with a touchdown. So up to that point, it had been very much a close game, a back-and-forth game. Literally, I score, I'm going to score right back. No unanswered drives kind of thing. Then the 49ers punted, and the Rams responded with a with a field goal drive and then forced the Niners to punt again and then took the lead with the last field goal. And Jimmy Garoppolo on the last possession when they had a minute and something you know, close to two minutes, essentially, three plays, ended in a pick, and that was the end of the game. So it was a much tighter kind of game, uh, much slower in effect. Um, similar, Similarly, they both 
both Mahomes and Staff, both Garoppolo and Stafford went two for one inter- TD to interception ratio. But a big difference here is Matthew Stafford was 31 for 45 for 340 yards essentially, and Garoppolo was essentially 50 percent uh, completion percentage at 16 of 30 for 230 yards. Um, they both ran, didn't run the ball very effectively. You know, 50 yards for the 49ers and 70 yards for the Rams. So there, there weren't any huge statistical gaps here. Um, the Rams outgained San Francisco and time of possession was in their favor, which is not the way San Francisco likes to play. Like their one touchdown drive, one of their touchdown drives was like four plays, 70 yards, but only in like two minutes. They don't, that's not generally how they like to play. They like to go, you know, 10 plays, seven minutes, touchdown drives, uh, really slowing the game down. And they just weren't able to do that. Here's the thing. This is why this game and the last game are why the Rams brought in Stafford. Jared Goff wasn't going to win this game. You had to be cool. Yeah, he, they both threw a pick. But you had to be calm. You had to be able to bounce back someone. You had to be able to deal with the big lights. And then in the last week against the Tampa Bay, they would have folded it. Jared Goff probably would have folded in that second half. And so that's why Stafford is here. It's so he can elevate the team past the certain hurdles. And like everyone answers with, but Jared Goff got him to a Super Bowl. Yes, they got to a Super Bowl and he played okay in the playoffs, but it was very much surrounded around that defense and everything else. And like Sean McVay has said himself, he feels he doesn't have to scheme nearly as much to win with Stafford. He can be more open. He can have more creativity in the playbook, which gives them more options and more ability to win or to come back. And that's a very important thing uh, to be able to have. And I feel so happy for the Rams and for Matthew Stafford in particular, uh, finally being able to do, uh, being able to show people that he is a great player. Like, I knew this before, um, but a lot of casual fans just don't because they don't watch the worst teams and they're not, they don't see the nuance of the player, not the organization or the team kind of thing. And so when they made this trade um, almost a year ago uh, to the day when those games was, was happening, I, I thought it was a absolutely phenomenal move to go get Stafford and it's paid off really quick this team is very much all in this team went and got Von Miller went and got OBJ this team is riding on this year but I I think that they can most certainly um they could most certainly keep OBJ um if not Von Miller now here's the thing about the Von Miller um He's really benefited uh, because it is the back end of his career. He's really benefited from Aaron Donald because even if Aaron Donald's not getting the sacks or whatever, Aaron Donald pushes the pocket in in the front because 
he doesn't come off the edge. He's an interior defensive lineman, so he pushes the pocket in, forcing the quarterback to leave the pocket and back up out of the pocket so that Von Miller no longer needs to get entirely past the tackle and he can have a much wider arc around and get the quarterback that way without having to fully bypass the um, the tackle. And that's a very good thing, and that's really helped him. It helped in the fumble he caused on Tom Brady. It's, it's helped throughout uh, his time here. It obviously, both him and OBJ took a week or two to accumulate, get used to the atmosphere, but it's been very good for them. And that's the thing. When you have a good culture, you can make it work. And I think that speaks a lot to the other cities that aren't able to do it. And here, just a little bit, I'm going to talk about for a second the fact that the Rams are telling you something that no one else really does. And it's the fact that draft picks aren't nearly as valuable as players. Players are known commodities in the NFL, while draft picks are unknowns out of college. Unless it's literally first-round draft picks, and even then, you don't really know the extent of how good they're going to be. So having the ability to know what a player is in the NFL, know their capabilities within the NFL, is great. Also, having a veteran who can learn the playbook real quick, come in, help where you need it, um, is phenomenal. The other thing is Eric Weddle. They went and got him out of... uh, out of retirement. They were like, we need this position right now. Do you want to come back and play? He didn't play since 2019. It was the last time Eric Weddle had played. So it's very interesting. It's a very different philosophy than a lot of teams, and it's very good for Sean McVay. Now, we're going to get into the Super Bowl matchup. We've got the Rams versus the Bengals. I am stoked. I think I mentioned at the beginning of the playoffs in our first episode that This was my favorite Super Bowl matchup possibility. You know, it's two younger teams. It's a quarterback who I want to see succeed in Matthew Stafford after so many years of terrible, terrible teams in the Lions. Um, It's a young quarterback in Joe Burrow who is lifting his team up that I think had one of the worst rosters in the playoffs if we're going to be completely honest um and showing what he's truly capable in his second year in the nfl first full season in the nfl um i think that defines value of a player um and so it's really really worked they're both really entertaining teams to watch they seem both well coached the rams are definitely well coached uh, Zach Taylor, I don't know for sure. They're, uh, I'm on the fence there still a little bit. I don't know how much of it is Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow and how much of it is the coach. But the defense has been much better this year. There are at times weaknesses of it, but when they really need it, it steps up like it did uh, against Kansas City in the second half. Um, so it's a really fun game. Um, I know people don't like the fact that the Rams are playing in SoFi, which I get, but they're not even in their own locker room, and they're not the official home team. Uh, the Rams are actually the road team by consideration of the game uh, for coin flip purposes and whatever. They're technically the road team, quote-unquote. Um, 
And so it's going to be a very interesting game, uh, I feel like. Um, there, there are a couple key things that each team really needs to think about, uh, but I'm going to start talking about Cincinnati a bit. Uh, they need to be better in the red zone. They were atrocious in the red zone in the AFC Championship. They went one for three, like I mentioned earlier. Their one touchdown came off of the pick that put them, that started their drive at the Kansas City 27-yard line. Um, yeah, the other two times where they drove down, they did really well. They drove all the way down inside the 20 and then just stalled. Three straight plays, not even like got a little bit, got a little bit, but couldn't get the first down. Literally, both times, it was three plays that got zero yards, um, and then they had to kick a field goal. Uh, if they do that again, I don't see them winning uh, winning this game. I think the Rams are going to be very efficient in converting in the red zone, and so they will have to match that. Um the other thing is they're going to obviously need to protect Joe Burrow. They did a good job of it last week. He only was sacked one time. Uh, if they can do that uh, again, they have a really good chance of winning. But honestly, I'm not expecting them to hold Aaron Donald, Von Miller, and Leonard uh, to one sack. I expect to have a couple. Here's the thing. That's okay, but if they get... if Let's say five or more sacks, I think this game is over. Like, I really don't think they've got much of a chance if the Rams sack him five times. It's not like the Tennessee game where Tannehill played badly. I don't see Matthew Stafford playing that badly. Matthew Stafford has been phenomenal in the fourth quarter this year. Uh, Highest rated quarterback in the fourth quarter. So, and I believe he has zero picks in the fourth quarter. So it's going to be very important that they are able to stay in this game because I do not think they will be able to catch up if they have such a deficit like they did last week. Um, They will have to keep this game close, which means they will have to be scoring touchdowns. Um, The other thing is they probably want to speed the game up. While the Rams are not San Francisco in the drasticness of how they want to slow the game down at their core. Sean McVay likes to have the game doesn't like a fire gun show. You know, he doesn't like it being insane and crazy and whatever. While that can really work to Cincinnati's um, benefit. If they're on the field for shorter and they are chucking it downfield, which they're very want to do. They had the number one, uh, amount of deep plays and touchdowns over 20 yards this season so if they can be getting big chunk plays quick drives whatever it leaves less time for um for Aaron Donald and the cohorts of that defense to sack and pressure and br- batter Joe Burrow because sacks aren't all that matter on the score sheet. What matters is pressures and knockdowns. They matter just as much, if not more, because while a sack is a singular play, cool, get up, shake it off, we're on to the next play. Thing is, if you're constantly being pressured, and that can knock anyone off their game, uh, the pressure is more important than the sacks, I believe. And if they are playing a game where drives are short, if they're fast, if they're moving, you'll have less time, they'll have less time to pressure Joe Burrow 
and so he won't his entire game won't be affected by uh, the fact that he's constantly got guys falling around him, falling around his feet, hitting him, knocking him to the ground. Um, and so I think that's something they really want to do is the speed up of the game. Uh, and if they can do that and do that effectively, no, I don't mean three and outs and punting, um, then I think they've got a real serious shot here. But our other main issue is now we're going to jump over to the Rams. They need that pressure. They don't need the sacks. The sacks will obviously help. Third down sacks are huge. Uh, just making the chains longer is very, very helpful. But I think more crucial, like I just mentioned, is the pressure. Um, if he, Joe Burrow is constantly under pressure, even though I think he deals with it better than honestly most quarterbacks I've ever seen. Now, I don't think number one necessarily. It's still really early in his career, but he deals with pressure like so few do. And, but it still is going to affect you. It's the constantly having guys around you. It changes you. It means you got to, oh, I got to play faster. But if they just, and that is one way that will help the Rams. If they can get him off kilter just a little bit, even if they're not getting home and getting the sacks. Um, they'll get them when they need them, but that pressure is going to be so key to this game um, that if they are stopped how Kansas City was stopped last week, I don't think the Bengals are going to be as inept in the red zone this week, and that could spell trouble. So we're going to talk about uh, – one matchup here in particular, just because it's been in the news a little bit, which is Eli Apple and OBJ. They both played together in New York, and there's been back and forth smack talk over the last two weeks since the championship games between them. Um, it'll be a fun matchup. Then there's Jalen Ramsey versus Jamar Chase. Granted, Jalen Ramsey doesn't really travel with receivers because the Rams use him in very unique ways. He has the most tackles for a loss of any cornerback this year. He was the highest graded cornerback. Um, and so they use him in a lot of different schemes. And so he's not going to travel with Jamar Chase, which means Jamar Chase might not have the targets or catches that he has um, previously in the last couple of weeks. But what he will have, I think, is he'll – I think he's going to exploit – those few times when he doesn't have Ramsey on him. And if they and if Ramsey does travel with him, Higgins is a very good receiver. Uh, some games he seems to have the drops, and if he doesn't, if he can hold on to the ball um, in this game, it'll be very good. Then they have Tyler Boyd, uh, who's a very serviceable slot receiver, and then C.J. Uzama coming back, third down help. Joe Mixon is very good out of the backfield. He's not generally thought of like that or used like that, but he is fairly effective out of the backfield. And that's the other thing we got to talk about is run game. Now, a lot of people are saying that uh, they that the Cincinnati should be running the ball to protect Joe Burrow. Um, the more you run, the less times that Joe Burr is going to be hit or sacked. And maybe. I think it should be a high tempo where there's a decent balance of running and passing, but when they're passing, I think they should be trying to score in big chunks. Um, I don't think they should be running 12 plays a drive. I think they should be maxing out at 7, you know, 
a run on first down and then passes, maybe. You know, I think they should be trying to score quickly and efficiently. Um, I'm looking for Joe Burrow to have over 300 yards passing and like three touchdowns uh, for them to win. The Rams, on the other hand, have Sony Michelle and Cam Akers. Cam Akers looked okay. They 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 didn't do very well yesterday uh, last time against the 49ers. They they had like 70 yards rushing total. Um, they're gonna they are gonna want to slow the game down. Um, take out time. Take out clocks. Um, you know, drag the game on with longer drives. They don't want to have huge long drives. They don't want 10-minute drives, but they want five, seven-minute drives, you know, dragging out the clock as much as they possibly can to make this a low-scoring game. While they both can burn you, Cooper Cup is phenomenal. Um, I think it plays more... The quick strike plays more to the strengths of the Cincinnati Bengals. So I I definitely think this is going to be a phenomenal game. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, So I'm looking forward to it, and I have no one I'm rooting for. It's one of the first time in several years that I haven't had, like, a team I wanted to win or a team I wanted to lose. It was very much – it's very much – I'm okay with either. Stafford wins, that's great for Stafford, and it's enjoyable. If Burrow wins, then, you know, it's a young quarterback doing something no one really ever has. Winning a Super Bowl in his second year, number one overall pick, doesn't generally turn teams around that quickly. Off an injury, first to win a Heisman, a national championship, and a Super Bowl, um, and it'll all be in essentially three seasons. Um, and so that's, that, that's a huge thing. They're both fun teams. The one thing I'm not hoping for is a blowout, which it could be, it could blow up, be a blowout either way, but you more likely if it's a blowout, it's going to be a Rams blowing out, uh, Cincinnati. And I really don't want that to happen. Like I'm not a huge fan of the idea of, you know, blowout Super Bowls being fun unless you're literally a fan of said team. But even then, then it's just cool. My team won after the first quarter. It, it's I love nail biters. I love close games, and I really hope this game comes down to the wire. Hopefully not overtime because those rules are atrocious. But now we're going to move into betting. Uh, we're switching it up. We're not doing betting at the end. We're doing betting right uh, here at the end of the football talk. Um, there are a couple things uh, just going to start off with. Um, bet Cincinnati plus four if it's still plus four, especially if it hits uh, four and a half, which uh, for me looking at is currently right now. The number it's at is four and a half. Um, I believe this game is going to be close and field goal close, like end of the game field goal win. So getting that four, four and a half is a great number. Um I personally have Cincinnati winning the game, so I also have their money line. But betting the um, betting the spread is definitely the safer bet, but I think it's a very good bet. Now, don't bet this unless you're crazy because of the way the MVP voting works for the Super Bowl is it's people vote throughout the game, and so very rarely or ever do you see a kicker win the voting because 
they might be the MVP of the game hitting a clutch field goal uh, at the end of the half or at the end of regulation, but you don't generally see the voting change that drastically in those last couple minutes of the game because people have been voting for the whole second half of the game, Uh, much like the Malcolm Butler interception in the Seattle Patriots Super Bowl. Um, But I put a couple bucks on the long shot of Evan McPherson winning it. Now, here are my two big bets of the week, essentially the two parlays. I've done really well throughout the playoffs uh, on parlays and some prop bets. And so we're going to talk about that real quickly here. Um, My first one is a little more wonky, and that is... Jamar Chase, longest reception over, he needs to hit 27 yards. Odo Beckham, total receptions of five. CJ Uzama, total receptions of four. And Van Jefferson, longest reception of 19 yards. And then Evan McPherson, over seven and a half total kicking points. Um, So this is not terribly big deal. It's very good odds. Um, Jamar Chase, I do believe, like I said, they should be getting big plays, whatever. So I think Jamar Chase is going to get a couple burns on, uh, either Ramsey, who every once in a while will give up a big play or when Ramsey is not covering him. Van Jefferson generally doesn't get many receptions, but when he gets them, there's generally close to 20 yards. And so this number being under 20, I like, um, Odell Beckham Jr., uh, that's my longest shot of this. The six receptions I think is very hard. It is going to be hard for him to get, but I like it. The Van, the McPherson, that's, you know, two field goals and two extra points or three or just straight up three field goals. So I, I think him hitting eight uh, kicking points is very easy. And Uzama, I really like his reception prop. It didn't work out last week because he got hurt. Um, and so I hope he's actually healthy because otherwise it's bub kiss. Um, now my other one is similar. Uh, I have some of the similar stats in it, but, uh, the big differences here are, so we still got the Van Jefferson longest reception prop, the Evan McPherson kicking prop and the Uzama receptions prop. Now, the other two are different. You've got Cam Akers' total reception. He needs to hit three. And um, the other thing is Odo Beckham Jr. to get a touchdown. I think he's got a good game in him, and so I I think he'll get one of those two, either the six receptions or a touchdown in this game. Now, some other props I like on their own, but not directly you know, in a parlay. I'm not relying on them for a parlay, but I do like um, a couple of the reception props uh, here this week. Um, I like the rushing yards for Joe Burrow at 12. Uh, I just think he gets third downs a lot of the time, so I think that's a fairly decent prop. Um, But the receptions prop... There's some really good numbers here. Like I mentioned, you've got Cam Akers. That's at plus 150, so that's a good individual number. Sony Michelle is at plus 185 to get two receptions. You know, if you want to roll the dice on some of the running backs, 
Um, Siju Uzama is it's plus one fifty five, so it's a very good prop. The other thing is Tyler Boyd to have five catches is at plus one forty, um, which is a fairly good prop. Now back to the kicking. Um, you never think it's terribly wrong to just make a tiny parlay of like the kicking points, like total made extra points, or total made field goals, like one of each kicker. Uh, Matt Gay and Evan McPherson's both numbers are at seven and a half for the total kicking points. Both are at uh, two and a half for the made extra points and two for the field goals. So you can play with around with those. I'm not sure if I'm going to. Um, really, if I'm going to do that, but you definitely could, um, you definitely could make some waves and play them pretty well if, you, you know, if you've got the money to burn on them, uh, on these props, these individual props. I like both quarterbacks going over, uh, two touchdowns, going over one and a half touchdowns. I like Matthew Stafford to throw an interception. Um, just some of these props, you know. I don't like getting into the weirder props that only are available in Super Bowl because you don't have time to make trends and things off of it. So that's those are my bet uh, my betting insights for the week. So we're going to transition into the NHL. The NHL just had its. Uh, all-star break and so there weren't that many games going on since the last episode but uh, some big things did happen so I want to get into first we're just going to talk about um, overall you know getting into the back half of the season uh, some of the teams that I think are going to pull in to the playoffs and could be dangerous in the playoffs and some of the teams I either think are toothless in the playoffs or will fall out of the playoff race. Um, my belief on the eight teams in the Eastern Conference are still pretty set on who's in, who's out kind of thing. Uh, the Islanders are making a slight push, but I just don't think they've got it in them to fully finish that push. Um, now, the Western Conference is where I think some things are interesting. Like I've mentioned before, Minnesota is using those games in hand and now is in second place within the Western, uh, the Central Division. Um, I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, but we'll get into that later because I want to talk specifically about Minnesota's success as of late. Now, in the... Pacific uh, Conference, the other team you've got right now is Calgary has skyrocketed up to number two in the division. Honestly, they might end number one in the division because they are one point behind Vegas with three games in hand on them. They have one of the league's best uh, goal differential at plus 44. I'm really not sure how many teams have better than that. I think it's two or three. I think you've got Colorado at 59, Florida at 55, and Carolina at 52. I don't think any other team has a better plus minus than they do. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see what happens there. But yeah, Calgary was very much... Uh, has jumped up they're making up their games they have a very busy month this month and next month so 
I think that's the thing right there. Edmonton has been playing a little bit better. They're now in fifth place um, in the division, and they are just outside of the playoff bubble. Um, You've got uh, Edmonton and Dallas at 51 and 52 points, respectively. Anaheim at 55 in the number two wildcard spot. But both of those teams have significant games in hand. Four for Edmonton, um, three for Dallas. So I think both those teams can maybe make a push for the playoffs right now. Uh, St. Louis is doing well, but they're holding steady. I think they are what they are. They're a you know wildcard team. I think Nashville might fall off, but... My push candidates are Dallas and Calgary. I think no one is taking them seriously. Obviously, Dallas is less so. I think Calgary is the team that no one is taking seriously that is going to burn people in the playoffs. Um, Dallas, I think, could make that push for the playoff run. Uh, So could Edmonton because, like I've mentioned before, Anaheim and the Kings are, you know, young teams heading in the right direction no doubt but very young teams uh they both have 55 points Edmonton has 51 that's four points behind but Edmonton has two games in hand on the Kings and four games in hand on the Anaheim that is four and eight potential points uh for them they've fired their coach they seem to be doing a little bit better in the last couple games um so, yeah, it's it's a good sign for them, but it's not quite over. You know, it's not like, oh, cool, they got a new coach, they're pushing. They have been winning the last couple games, but it's still a wait-and-see kind of thing for me on Edmonton. I don't expect them to really skyrocket and run away with anything, and uh, but I definitely think they could steal a playoff spot. Without goaltending, without them making a goaltending move, I don't like. I don't like them in the playoffs. I don't. I don't think they're really that serious. They have two phenomenal players who play off each other extremely well on the power plant. If that struggles, they struggle tremendously. Um, we'll get into a little bit of the trade talk in a little bit. Um, so those are my, you know, boomer bust teams now. Minnesota is absolutely amazing. They have they prior to the All Star break they were on a nine and one run. Uh, they lost their first game back from the All Star break. That's fine. It's not terribly important. Um, but since then they uh, they beat Carolina, which is more important than beating Winnipeg. Um, they beat them three to two in a very close game. They're a very very good team at home. Uh, their record at home is phenomenal. Um, they've got a bit of a tough, uh, tough month coming up a little bit till the end of the month. They play Detroit, Winnipeg, and Florida, uh, home away home, it on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday respectively, and then they go on a four-game Canada road trip: Edmonton, Ottawa, Toronto, and Calgary. Um, next Sunday. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So that's if they can pull out, you know, two of those wins uh, predominantly against Toronto and Calgary, um, if they could, 
uh, that will look great for them. But the big thing is March. March is going to be a very big month for them. They play a lot of good teams, but it's in their favor. It's predominantly at home. They have two back-to-backs. They have three back-to-backs, but two of their back-to-backs are away on, on the road, but they're not against great teams. So on the 3rd and 4th of March, they play Buffalo and Philly. On the 10th and 11th of March, they play Detroit and Columbus. So not terribly um, good teams. The rest of the month, however, is all at home. It's a tough schedule. It's full of good teams. But it is all at home. And I expect them to be able to do really well in it. Now, I also think this compacted July, uh, February and March is going to help them prepare for the playoffs better than they were prepared last year. They gassed out kind of in that game seven against Vegas. They play Calgary um, again, right? Two games, Calgary end of February, beginning of March, um, this time though at home. Then they play Dallas, New York, Nashville, Boston, Chicago, Vegas, Vancouver, Columbus, Colorado, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. Those are their home games of the month. Uh, They have a lot of tough opponents. You know, Dallas is a hard out, but then you've got the Rangers, Calgary, Boston, um, Vegas, Pittsburgh, Colorado. It's not an easy schedule, but if they can come out of it still looking pretty good, winning you know, 70% of the game, 700, you know, point percentage, um, then I, then I think they're the team to watch in the league, right? They're the team I have my eye on them in Calgary. Honestly, Calgary similarly has a very intense schedule. Um, they play a lot of back-to-backs this month. They, uh, after right after the all-star break, they be, played Vegas and Toronto in a back-to-back beat them both. Uh, beat the Islanders. They're currently on a six-game win streak, um, which is very good. They then later this week play Columbus and Anaheim in a back-to-back. Then they play. Then going into March, they have a very busy uh, March. They also play most of their games at home. Uh, but they have you know at home they play Minnesota at the beginning of March. And they on the road, but then they've got Edmonton, Washington in a back-to-back. Then they've got Tampa Bay, uh, Edmonton later um, in the month in another end of a back-to-back. And then Colorado and the Kings, um, they play Colorado twice, once at home, once away. Uh, three times, twice away, once at home throughout the month. So they also have a very tough month. But if those two teams can come out of the month of March... Uh, with a plus 700 for those months, not a plus 700, a 700 point percentage for the month. Um, they're going to be very well poised because they're beating the teams ahead of them or on par with them. And that's a very, very, very large thing. Now, I'm going to talk about something that happened the other day in a Pittsburgh-Boston game. Brad Marchand, out of nowhere, not even in a scuffle, which happens. Things happen in scuffles. I'm not going to get into the details of that. Um, But outside of a scuffle after a puck was frozen by Tristan Jari, Brad Marchand went up, clocked him in the face. Just straight up, 
punched him in the face. And then he, as he was being pulled away and his helmet was pulled off, I was being pulled away by the refs and his own teammates. He flips his stick, the blade of his stick out under the ref's arm and hits Jari in the head again. Um, to me, they, they then warranted a six-game suspension. I think this was weak by the NHL. For a player with such a history of dirty plays, to slap him with under 10 games is absolutely ridiculous. Um, it wasn't, um, it wasn't in a, in a fight, in a scuffle kind of thing where things get out of hand sometimes. It wasn't even, you know, bad illegal hits. They, tend to give huge suspensions for when those things are not intentional most of the time. Like, I think most people understand they're not truly intentional. It's, you hit a guy wrong, you clipped him at fast speed wrong, you know, kind of thing. This was nothing but intentional, nothing but dirty. They were losing the game badly. It, it It's an affront to the sport. I hate using that. I hate saying it. But this year has been so good for the league bringing in new fans and they know it's physical and some people don't like the fighting, the literal uh, rules of the loud fighting, um, but they understand it. They know it has structure and there's and then there's the around the net, you know, big kerfuffles that aren't really anything, just a bunch of guys holding on to each other kind of thing and the that, that's okay. People can understand that while... If it comes to, if it comes to this though, this is an unprovoked, un, not uncharacteristic for the player, but it is an unprovoked black eye on the sport of hockey. So much so that I have had friends who just started watching hockey, who uh, never really had before, that you know that really was they felt was wrong, and they don't they were like questioning why is that something that he can get away with he got a six game suspension but in the grand scheme of the league that's nothing he should have been out till at least the trade deadline you know he should have been out 15 games which really means they should have given him like a 20 game suspension that then got arbitered down to 15 uh it's very possible now he arbiters this six games down to three and it's essentially nothing it's not even a slap on the wrist and it's ridiculous especially for a player with his history if they actually want him to change, they would slap him with something big. An example is Tom Wilson. He was slapped with a big suspension. It got lessened, but it was something like 20 games um, for a hit he made one year, a couple years back, either the year of or the year after their Stanley Cup run, where he, uh, in the preseason, he clipped a guy wrong, and they gave him 20 games because of history and whatever, and he... Uh, because of that, he really hasn't been suspended since. He arbitrated it down. It was about 15 games in the end. And since then, he hasn't really been suspended. And the one time he was, uh, he shouldn't have been, it was Boston's fans crying about something where the arbiter clearly stated that it it goes against all the rules of the NHL that he should have been suspended for uh, the hit that was ruled legal on the play. Video clearly showed it was legal, but the NFL, the NHL knee-jerk reaction, and that's what happens. So I, I really think that the NHL screwed this up 
by giving him such a small slap. Like, even if it got Arbiter down, and I think they were afraid of that, and I don't think understand why they should. It should have been, you know, we're going to slap you with 20 games to send a message. We understand there's a good chance it gets, you know, pulled down to 10, 15 games. But we're not just going to give you, you know, a week. Ah, you're a week off. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, and it's really bad for the NHL. Uh, here's... Now we're going to go into more grand scheme of things after the All-Star break. And talk for a minute about the ESPN and TNT uh, running the show, the broadcasts. Um, I think it's very good for the league. Uh, ESPN, which is the A block of it, um, they don't have many games on the actual ESPN channel, which I don't think is very good. I think they should have more of them. Um... But they will, they will, it's just, they've got other things airing right now, and they ha- so they have their nationally televised game on ESPN+. But what I think this deal did that is so great for the league is made their out-of-market games more accessible. With ESPN+, you now have all out-of-market games except for the nationally televised blackouts, which has always been a thing. Uh, even though some people have been complaining about it, thinking that it's more so, it's really not. It's the exact same number of blacked out games as were previously. And so this deal, it first of all, it's cheaper for a lot of people because they have the bundle with Disney or they can pay for it. It's, it's cheaper than doing NHL.TV and it's much smoother where you could buy the center ice on your TV and you're supposed to be able to use it in the phone or in the app, but that wouldn't work if you had certain providers. And then if you bought it on your phone, you could not do it on your TV. It was very, and it was another expense that in of itself was fairly expensive. And so this is more cost effective and it's very good that it's on a big platform like ESPN where people scrolling through ESPN plus, if they have it, see hockey, not much else on, want to watch something sports, um, they can watch hockey, and it's really brought in a lot of people. I know a lot of people out of market, really, who um, have been able to watch their team if they live away, or people who've never really watched hockey who are watching hockey for the first time. Um, and that's very good for the sport. It's very good for the salary cap, um, and ultimately, it's very good for the players. Now, TNT, there were some concerns with their broadcast team at the very beginning of the season after their first broadcast, that they were a little too jokey or a little too reliant on name, power of Gretzky, but it's not. I actually really like it. Um, I think it's one of the best broadcast teams ever uh, for hockey. I love their ability to have a duality of we have the people who have the knowledge to explain super intricate things and talk about intricate things, but we also there's also a levity to the thing. Like, normally, especially when it used to be on NBCSN, during the intermissions, I would just mute it. There was Unless there was a particular play I knew was going to be talked about that I wanted to hear about, it was very boring. They sat on a board and they talked about X's and O's. While that's sometimes interesting, doing that for the entire break is boring. And so the TNT broadcast team has very well been able to bring an air of an air of levity and fun and entertainment while also being able to get down to the numbers and the effects of things 
Um, and so I think that they knocked it out of the park with their who their uh, who their broadcast team is. And so I'm very happy for hockey. Um, it's going to be a run down the stretch. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening. I really look forward to these playoffs, you know, back to a normal structure, normal divisions. Um, and so that's all we've really got time for. Uh, thank you for tuning in and listening. Uh, you can follow me at Shane Marazon823 on Twitter. You can find the show Puck and Pigskin on pretty much every major podcasting uh, platform. Please follow and like. And uh, let's enjoy some football and some hockey.